Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Today's episode is brought to you with the welcome support of Malbin Greek, UK's leading Greek delicatessen, supplier and distributor of premium Greek produce. Whatever your needs, Malbin Greek has you covered. You can shop online and have the divine and delicious goods delivered to your doorstep across the UK, or you can visit the shop at Art17 Apollo Business Park, Lucy Way, SC16, 4ET, Bermondsey, London. Malbin Greek, the one-stop shop for your Greek fix. Hello, this is the Delicious Legacy Podcast. Welcome back to another archaeogastronomical adventure. With me, Thomas Dinas. Now, what uh, would um, Tibetan deer, the baleen whale and the pomegranate have in common? What the heck is that connects these things? And certainly, what, what is it? that uh, makes them so interesting that I dedicate a whole episode about them and what's the connection with the spices and spice trade and of course food well if you have a little patience sit here with me and enjoy this episode so I would like to take the opportunity to ask you um, some question about the podcast here Do you prefer the episodes to be released on a Monday or on a Wednesday? When is it more likely that you will listen to them? Um, And on a similar note, if you noticed that I'm trying to produce one episode a week, is that something that, um, is it good or is it too much for you guys? Or do you prefer that I go back to one episode bi-weekly, like two episodes a month or so? Please uh, let me know what your preferences are. I'd be interested to know. And um, yeah, you can tweet me on Twitter at uh, Delicious Legacy. You can also email me at uh, the Delicious Legacy Podcast, all one word, uh, at uh, gmail.com. And of course, you can reach me out on Instagram, which I'm uh, as the Delicious Legacy as well. So yeah, um, get in touch and let me know what um, 
what's more uh, convenient for you guys. Now we certainly have um, encountered musk and um, the derivatives of it in a perfumery and also, you know, the glands of animals and so on. But what is the connection here with um, spices and our food? This seems very odd way of uh, starting an episode. Musk is one of the most enduring aromatic and potent aromatic in the world and comes from a very rare substance held in the glands, in the scent glands of uh, some of uh, the most endangered deer living in Asia, in the genus of uh, Moscus. Now, to attract uh, mates and to repel competing um, uh, rivals, they have um, a unique way of doing this. They mark their territory by dropping uh, grain-like secretions onto shrubs and at its margins from uh, an abdominal pouch that protrudes not far from the genitals. So in the wild, a mature buck will produce and paste 20 to 25 grams of these waxy, blood-colored musk grains into shrubs on each mating season. When these pasty droppings are dried, they become charcoal black, charcoal black grains, rich in the pheromone known as uh, muscone to chemists. And the fragrance of freshly harvested musk is so powerful, so potent, that newcomers find it either completely repulsive or for some reason, divinely divinely pleasurable. This, of course, has to be diluted. And musk, once it's diluted, has a warm, aromatic, earthy fragrance that some have likened it to scent of freshly cut wood or a baby skin uh, just after bath. That's uh, not my description, but um, what uh, some people describe as a sweet smell. Some Something like... Um, yeah, I don't know how to describe it otherwise, but I know it sounds a bit weird as a, as, as a description of a smell, but uh, it kind of also makes sense, you know, if you ever been uh, uh, near babies, I suppose. There are some tantalizing evidence that musk could possibly have been traded uh, very locally as early as uh, frankincense, so around 3500 BCE. But thousands of years passed, and by the 6th century CE, musk had become the most widely sought-after and highly prized fragrance in the world, with a single kilo of musk worth twice the value of an equal amount of gold. For comparison, today musk worth still quite a lot, and it's like three or four times its weight in gold. Beyond um, being used in perfumes, and aromatics and incenses. It had many uses, like aromatic soaps, for, for, for example. And um, in India, it was valued as a cardiac cure for diseases. And in Europe and uh, Great Britain, it found culinary favor as an ingredient in baked goods, beverages, candies, ice creams, molasses, and puddings. The name seems to originate from uh, the late Greek Moschos, from the Persian word Musk and Sanskrit uh, Muska, which probably means something like testicle 
And of course, um, natural mask pods occur in uh, Chinese traditional medicine. And when Marco Polo described uh, the collection of amber mask grains off the forest floor for trade westward, they were probably being gathered in the natural habitat of the Siberian musk deer in either the Tianshan or the Altai Mountains. Once these were widespread musk deer species ranged uh, from Siberia and Outer Mongolia southwestward across the trade routes uh, and all the way to Kazakhstan. Mongolian and Huigu harvesters knew how to obtain the grains without killing the deer and no doubt passed them on the Sogdian uh, traders who, starting in the 5th century, see, of course, annually delivered as much as 1,500 kilograms of musk westwards as far as Constantinople, Athens and Rome. It takes about uh, killing 30 to 50 sexually mature bucks to gather the one kilogram of musk. So you can imagine uh, that um, at some point um, the demand was uh, really uh, high for good quality musk, amber musk. So that put pressure to nomadic traders and nomadic hunters to kill and gut uh, the animals rather than uh, sustainably harvest the musk. By the 19th century, the range of the Siberian musk deer had contracted and the number of deer uh, had declined dramatically. And today, the only surviving population in China remains in the most remote reaches of the Altai Mountains. Once uh, the traditional primary sources for amber musk declined, harvesters uh, tend to Tonkin musk from the black musk deer living in the Tibetan highlands. In time, its fragrance became even more highly regarded than that of the amber musk, but the black musk deer population soon rapidly declined as well. And of course, finally, poachers, hoping to meet the continuing demand, ruthlessly began hunting a third species from farther south in the Himalayas, and its numbers have also fallen. Now, all three species are considered vulnerable to extinction, and the sales of their products are banned, thankfully, through international treaties of wildlife um, trade. There's a Persian Arab uh, dessert called uh, Falut Hajj, a confection made from sugar, starch, and nuts, and flavored with musk and rose water. The balina penetrates to our seas even. Pliny wrote, It is said that they are not to be seen in the ocean of Gades before the winter solstice, and that at periodical seasons they retire and conceal themselves in some calm, capacious bay, in which they take a delight in bringing forth. This fact, however, is known to the orca an animal which is peculiarly hostile to the balina, and the form of which cannot be in any way adequately described, but as an enormous mass of flesh armed with teeth. This animal attacks the balinian in its places of retirement, and with its teeth tears its young, or else attacks the females which have just brought forth, and indeed, while they are still pregnant. And this is from uh, Natural History of Pliny, which in uh, a passage talking about the whales, which is remarkably accurate 
in the behavior of the whales and the orcas, indeed. Mixed with wine, it was considered an aphrodisiac. It was used to ward off the plague and as medicine to treat headaches, colds, epilepsy and other illnesses. Louis XV of France is said to have spiced his favorite dishes with it, and Elizabeth I was said to have used it as a spice. But what is that mysterious substance, this sought-after fragrance, that uh, was used as a spice? And also, it was used in medicine and in perfumery. This substance is called ambergris, and it begins its arduous, log, mysterious journey in the depths of the ocean, hundreds and hundreds of tons of seawater in the darkness and in the warm and cavernous gut of the sperm whale. A sperm whale is huge, obviously, just almost all whales that we know of. A male bull probably weighs about 50 tons, so a sperm whale must consume about a ton of food a day to stay alive. To do that, they dive in depths of several hundred meters and beyond the farthest reaches of sunlight, where they ingest hundreds of pounds of deep water squid. Ambergris was already a sought-after fragrance and valuable commodity in ancient times. The Egyptians burned it as uh, an incense, and in, uh, in Arabian culture, the fragrance was just as well known as in... Uh, the coastal regions of the Indian Ocean. English upper classes perfumed uh, their gloves with it. In Egypt, it's still used, ambergris is still used, to flavor cigarettes. The first evidence of the use of ambergris in fine perfumery comes from the Arabs in Spain in the 10th century. And this was imported from the Sunda Islands and from Maghreb. At the beginning of the modern era, ambergris was traded through Europe and in many cases was weighted out with gold. Al-Hassan ibn Mohammed al-Wassan, called in uh, Western Europe Johannes Leo Africanus, around 1490, wrote that the price of one pound of ambergris on the market in Fez was uh, 60 ducats, which corresponds to that of three slaves. I know it's a very weird analogy, but those were the times. The finest and most valuable ambergris is pale grey to golden yellow, or in very rare cases, chalky white. It's a very strange substance, and it's one of these things together with musk that, um, yeah, um, conjures um, extremely weird um, feelings in people, I suppose, um, the smell of it. For a long, long time, there was a much uncertainty and ambiguity about the origin of ambergris. Uh, the Chinese called them um, Langxianhyang and imagined uh, dragons sleeping on coastal rocks and drooling in the sea while they slept. The saliva, they believed, was the source of the fragrance. In Japanese culture, on the other hand, they spoke of Kunsurano Fu. The Arab traveler and historian Al-Masudi reported of merchants and sailors who believed that ambergris grew like mushrooms on the seabed and was occasionally washed ashore by storms. Marco Polo was the first Western traveler, allegedly, to report that the sperm whale of ambergris was hunted by Yemeni sailors of the Socotra Islands. Culturally, 
uh, and etymologically, ambergris was confused probably with amber, the true amber, the yellow one, and um, to distinguish it between, obviously, ambergris, between amber and ambergris, the English word ambergris is used today for the extractory product of sperm whales, which is derived from the French ambergris and ultimately from the Arabic word anbar. So it's a very, this is a very complex and very balanced fragrance and has a series of notes and sample notes that combine and give a harmonious character to, to, to the smell, to the odor. It's typically very marine, marine type of odor, and different people described it like um, perception of the open ocean and not along the coasts that smell, accompanied by a violet tone occurring in algae or perceptible scent of damp, moss-covered ground in a forest, uh, but without the musty effect of it. Uh, a precious fragrance of exotic wood and an instance-like tonality, such as is found in ancient cathedrals, fine smell of tobacco, and so on and so on. I can go on forever. That's all the description of uh, the odor of ambergris. So ambergris is initially a waxy, soft mass in the intestine of the sperm whale, that's why we're talking about sperm whales here. And it forms after an injury by the horn jaws of the squid, which is the preferred food of the whale. So the ambergris serves as, a, as an antibiotic wound closure in which the indigestible components are all embedded of the squid. So the concretions enter the sea through vomiting as uh, fecal stones or through the natural death of the animals. And they can weigh anything between a few grams and 100 kilograms and it's almost black lumps. And initially, that smells of feces, obviously, and floats on the surface of the sea due to its low density. And while it's floating, there happens this transformation, this photochemical degradation and oxidization, uh, which transforms it to a very highly prized perfumery raw material. But as, as we will see, not only perfume. So like the other valuable animal perfume, musk or civet or castorium. So ambergris feels a perfect, slots perfectly on that kind of niche of uh, aromas. It was used obviously for ceremonial and religious purposes, but also started used by nobles for its fragrance and the mysterious effect of its odor. Christopher Kemp, a molecular biologist, writes in his book about ambergris that uh, ambergris was melted like butter onto roasted game encased in pastries. It was also used in sweets and uh, desserts and um, as, a, as an ingredient, as a fragrance. So Persian sherbets included uh, ambergris along with water and lemon. And apparently Casanova added it to his chocolate mousse as an aphrodisiac. And the French gastronome uh, Brillat Savarine recommended a shilling's worth of ambergris in a tonic of chocolate and sugar, which he claimed could render life more easy. Like coffee, but without the restless sleeplessness. Of course, being one of these mysterious substances that uh, ancient people didn't, didn't know much about it, or where was it coming from, or being so uh, rare, obviously was used a lot in perfume making and also in cooking, but not um, as common as we think, obviously. We haven't found any recipes from ancient Greece or ancient Rome that they use it. But um, 
we do have some evidence from medieval Arab and Indian cuisines, which basically adopted or copied elements from uh, the court cuisine of the medieval Persia, and of course, the use of, uh, of their aromatics in foods like orange blossoms, roses, other flowers, sandalwoods, camphor, and there is, of course, our ambergris in the food itself. There's an example of a 15th century recipe, the Nimatnama manuscript of the sultans of Mandu. Boil the meat well, take it off the fire, dry it, and fasten it to a wooden skewer. Mix saffron, white ambergris, and rose water together and rub it on the meat. Put it in a cooking pot and add rice. Put in fresh ginger, onions, and salt and cook it. Serve it with good gravy. Since ambergris was part of uh, medieval Arab cuisine, it might well have entered the cuisines of the medieval European privileged um, elites, which incorporated many Arab influences. But we haven't seen it yet in an English or French medieval recipe manuscript. Perhaps it can be seen or found at some point in medieval Italian recipe manuscripts, because uh, Renaissance Italian court cooks used uh, in biscotti and other sweets a lot of aromatics and flavorings such as musk and so on. I'll be back after this short break. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello there. Sorry to interrupt. My name's Dr. Neil Buttery and I'm host of the British Food History Podcast, a podcast that you, as a fan of the delicious legacy, might be interested in. I explore British food and its history in all its glory, with interviews with special guests, recipes, reenactments, and tracking down forgotten recipes and hyper-regional specialities. Previous topics include medieval eels, 18th century dining, curry, London street food sellers, breakfast, and the good old Yorkshire pudding. Search for the British Food History Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, 
back to the delicious legacy. Cheers! By the 17th century, the French too had adopted it. In uh, La Varenne's Traité de Confitures, ambergris, almost always paired with musk, perfumes, diverse and candied fruit concoctions, and sugar paste pastilles, and pralines, and marzipans, and wines, and lemonade, and as well as a preparation called creme haute façon, which is basically creme anglaise. La Varenne also gives us these directions for preparing both musk and ambergris for use in recipes. To prepare your musk in proper way, put it in a little cast iron mortar, pound it with a pestle of the same material, mix it with a little powdered sugar, and after everything is well ground, put it in a paper so that you can make use of it as needed. You can prepare ambergris in the same way and even mix them together to use as much for beverages as for preserves. Early modern England, there's a curious lady of the 18th century who claimed to have read in obscure 16th century sources that ambergris was the augur of Tudor court circles starting in the early 1500s. And by that we mean high taste, the thing to have. Perhaps this was true, but there's very little mention of it in the 16th century English printed cookbooks. Robert May, in The Accomplished Cook, 1660-1665, has some 20 recipes. Hannah Rulli, in Queen-like Closet, 1672, has close to 30. Rulli's fondness for the material is interesting, for she addressed uh, the upper-middle classes as much as she did the very wealthy. Perhaps ambergris was not quite as rare and expensive in 17th century England as we might suppose. Or perhaps it wasn't even ambergris, but something else. Both May and Woolley outline ambergris-infused medicinal drinks and both have uh, jellies, like gelatins, flavoured with uh, this substance. But otherwise, their recipes differ. Woolley focuses on ambergris-scented marzipans, preserved fruit co- cocktails and sugar candies. May uses ambergris primarily in dishes involving eggs or cream or both. Eggs poached in syrups, scrambled or poached eggs on toast, which is a rare non-sweet preparation for the book, rich baked puddings, codling cream, snow cream, cheesecakes, and the mildly alcoholic hot custard beverage called posset. Manuscript cookbooks trend towards recipes similar to maize, their most common ambergris um, vehicles being rich, custardy baked puddings of bread and, or gro- and ground almonds, most of which feature dried or preserved fruits and sometimes sliced apples or cooked artichoke bottoms too, lumps of beef marrow or butter, and plenty of thick cream and eggs. The following recipe is typical, except for the green potatoes hole, which uh, we guess uh, were the cream-colored sweet potatoes of the day, harvested when tiny and then candied and tinted green to resemble candied citron. And I'm going to put this recipe on my Patreon uh, page for you to listen. So it's a recipe of uh, almond puddings. It's a very interesting thing using uh, this animal-like substance flavor odor, which uh, it could be very subtle, of course, but still use it to flavor things um, like sweet dishes and rich puddings and baked puddings. But it must have been fashionable and tasty and something people did because also musk was used to, and musk is very animalic as well. And musk was not only used in most recipes calling for ambergris, but also in many recipes on its own, 
most famously perhaps in the Musk sugar candies, or kissing comfits, as Shakespeare called them, in reference to Musk's supposed aphrodisiac properties that the Elizabethan English adopted from Italy and adored for sweet banquets. Whether used uh, on its own or in tandem with ambergris and musk, uh, they were generally deployed in English recipes with rose water and spices, a combination of, a combination of uh, all these different scents that um, could actually sound like uh, a recipe for a perfume. So you have uh, this animalic, musky, uh, flora, uh, <laughs> tones and undertones and so on. But in the end, taste, I suppose, change, things uh, evolve, and uh, cultures influence other cultures and what is trendy and fashionable and so on. So in the end, the English predilection for animalic foods proved um, fleeting. Ambergris and musk appear in very few recipes written after 1700s. There's one cookbook uh, by the author E. Smith, uh, which has a recipe for whipped cream from 1727, which was supposedly copied by Hannah Glass in 1747 and in turn by Susanna Carter, 1772. And finally by Amelia Simmons, 1796, which is basically this recipe, this whipped cream recipe served with pastry in the second course of dinner or with, or with cake at evening parties. So this cream is mixed with ambergris. The lamps, which are initially almost black in color, float on the sea surface, as we said. Of course, to float on the sea surface needs to rise slowly from the bottoms of the ocean where it um, originates, ascending slowly because it's slightly dense than seawater through the frigid ocean and taken by the currents. Eventually, it reaches the surface where it floats and floats forgotten and mostly submerged, sometimes for years. At sea, the ambergis floats. It bobs and rolls through cyclones and heat, from tropics, from stillness to doldrums, and then stalls in currents for months and months. It picks up speed in higher latitudes. It turns back again. It's trapped in ocean gyres. It spends years and years navigating the Earth's oceans. This journey cannot be substitute. It seems and feels like wine in a bottle, and ambergris slowly matures like this at sea. Gradually reacts with its surroundings, oxidized by salt water, degraded by sunlight, and eroded by wave action, and then beached somewhere along a remote and windswept coastline, or dumped by a storm into a busy, populated stretch of water. By that time, it's an aged and well-traveled piece of ambergris. It's different, it has changed, it has been worked on by the ocean, and depending on how long it has been at the sea, its color and texture will have evolved from black tar-like substance to a pale, smooth, waxy ball rolling in the surf. Over the years, it loses most of its water content, it becomes smaller, smaller and denser. Its exterior hardens, takes on a tough, rind-like appearance, more than anything else now, resembles a light grey stone, a little like pumice stone, chalk or dried clay. Its surface might have a shiny patina on it. Its interior will be flecked with embedded squid beaks just like burnt black seeds. It smells pungently and it undergoes another transformation, 
that fecal smell that characterizes freshly expelled ambergris gradually softens and is replaced by a rich and complex odor described as we've seen above uh, as sweet and woody and earthy and marine. So yeah, this is the mysterious ambergris. This weird substance that comes from the depth of the oceans from the insides of whales, which accidentally rises and rises to the sea and reaches some random faraway corner of the earth and some curious and weirdly attracted human takes this ball and wonders what it is. Very interesting um, thing and very weird that we use it um, in perfumes and foods. It's just um, it's just another mystery to me, really. And I found it fascinating and I thought uh, it might be an interest of you here as uh, another exotic, weird um, and uh, rare spice that we use in our uh, historical foods. And of course this trade on musk and ambergris, which um, expanded uh, with the Arabs, with the Arab merchants, it brings me, however tenuously, to pomegranate. That might sound a bit weird, um, trying to include pomegranates, shoehorn them into a spice uh, episode, a spice and um, this kind of flavoring episode, but it does make sense in a way. Obviously pomegranate was very important in um, medieval Arab Spain, hence Granada pomegranate, the apple from Granada, uh, which became prevalent in uh, Northern Europe via the Arabs of Spain, the Moors. And although you might not consider the pulp and the seeds to be a true spice, as I said earlier, the seeds, the seeds and the syrup of the pomegranate can be used and are used all the time as garnish and does salad dressing in a salad dressing of course as um, flavoring uh, for sauces nowadays as it was back in the arab uh, times it was considered also something that um, can be used as a medicine uh, to promote well-being and we've seen a lot of juices made from pomegranate um, these days to promote uh, antioxidants and so on and so on and um, we can say that there are a few different varieties of pomegranates some very sweet and pleasant others sour and bitter and astringent or tartly and acidic but they're all widely used and they all have uh, been used for millennia the wild ancestors of uh, the of today's domesticated pomegranates are likely to be of central asian origin um, also, some food historians pinpoint Persia as the place of, first, uh, of the first domestication, and others suggest a more broad arc between Caucasus Mountains in the west and Himalayas in the east. Curiously, another species of, of the same family tree is cultivated as an ornamental and is native uh, to the island of Socotra, just south of uh, Arabia, the Arabian Peninsula and between um, Djibouti, Eritrea and the Afri East African coast and Arabia. A very unique and very alien, in a sense, landscape, the Socotra Island. Anyway, I'm digressing with Socotra Island, but that's a fascinating place. Google it if you don't know about it. I love the ancient Greek myth about the pomegranate, about um, how Persephone was in the underworld, abducted by Hades, and of course... Um, 
Demeter, her mother, wasn't, uh, she was mourning and the earth was barren. So Demeter was in Sicily, well, at least this is one of the myths and many variations of myths from ancient Greece that we get about the world. Um, so they were never set in stone anyway, but one of the myths says that Demeter was in Sicily, one of her favorite places, supposedly, when Persephone, while playing with her companions in the Nicene fields, she was carried off by Hades, the god of the underworld. Zeus, who was happy to play a trick on the faithless Demeter, was in plot with Hades, apparently. And hearing the girl's cries from far away, Demeter, who loved her daughter above all else, took the diadem off her bright hair and veiled herself in dark robes. Wailing with despair and flying bird-like over the water, which grew rough beneath her, and over the land, which turned to desert, she set off in search of Persephone. She wandered thus for nine days, carrying two lighted torches, refusing to partake of nectar and ambrosia, or to bathe in any water but her own tears, until her beloved daughter should be restored to her. No rain fell from the heavy clouds that covered the earth, and no plants grew or ripened. Exhausted with wandering, despair and fasting, Demeter was taken in by poor people living almost on a level with animals on the outskirts of a forest. The Savlis and his wife Bobo and the three sons, half-wild herdsmen, they consoled her and at last made her smile and agreed to drink a decoction of barley and mint, which revived her. Thanks to these good people, the goddess gave them the ears of uh, wheat she was holding before she, she retreated to the temple of Eleusis. The couple's youngest son, Triptolemus, determined to travel the world spreading the divine gift. Through him, men ceased to be savages, eating the plants they gathered and learned to cultivate grain. He is depicted driving a chariot with winged wheels and holding a sheaf of wheat as a whip. Since no one had anything to eat in Demeter's absence, no sacrifices or offerings were made to honor the gods. Iris, goddess of the rainbow, was sent to reason with the inconsolable mother, but in vain. One by one the immortals came to lavish wonderful gifts upon her, but all Demeter wanted was her beloved daughter. At last Zeus sent Hermes, messenger of the gods and patron of merchants, down to the underworld, and Hermes, who was noted for his cunning, persuaded Hades to release Persephone. The lord of the underworld allowed his mourning wife to go. But when she opened her mouth in a cry of joy, he seized his chance to make her swallow a pomegranate seed. She had now broken the fast and joined upon all the underworld, and would have to return to begin it again. So this is the story of Persephone traveling between underworld and earth for six months per year, and that's hence why we have the winter and summer, and where the fruits ripen, where there's joy, when Persephone is back with her mother, and so on. In a more grounded historical um, context, pomegranate, obviously, it was native to Persia, modern-day Iran, and it was familiar in Egypt by the mid-second millennium BC. So we're talking about four and a half thousand years ago. Um, we can see and we find the, the unmistakable shape appearing frequently on, on wall paintings from uh, then onwards all over the Mediterranean and it was very well known in Greece, hence the myth with the pomegranate uh, from um, earlier on. 
It is one of the fruit trees that characterizes the orchards of Alcinus in the Odyssey, and uh, by then the pomegranate was evidently spreading further west and west and west. It has been found by archaeobotanical finds uh, in southern France, like 3400 BCE, and the Latin name of the fruit, Malum Punicum, which we use for pomegranate, which means something like Phoenician apple, can be relied as evidence that the cultivation might have been introduced to Italy, or perhaps to Gaul or Sicily or whatever, by the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians. When uh, pomegranate made it from Damascus to Al-Andalus with uh, Banu Umayyah, it was a big hit. The first cultivar in Spain was named Safari, and it persisted with that name for hundreds of years after its introduction, around 755 AD. But rather than retain the ancient Semitic term Al-Ruman for all pomegranates, the Moors and Syrians who emigrated to Spain instead chose the Latin-derived Pomum Granatum, which was Arabized and condensed to Garnata, and then Hispanicized to Granada. And the latter, of course, as we said, became the name of one of uh, the most important centers of culture and agriculture in Moorish Spain during the era of Convivencia, which is Granada. Sephardic and Moorish Jews became just as full of pomegranates as Arabs were and used the image of the fruit above the doorways of their homes throughout the West. From Spain, pomegranate cuttings, including the safari variety, went on to the Canary Islands and then to the Americas. Athenaeus, writing uh, about the classical Greek period, he mentions that the following seasonings are listed by Adiphanes. Grape juice, salt, cooked wine, silphium, cheese, thyme, sesame, natron, cumin, pomegranate, honey, marjoram, fine herbs, vinegar, olives, green stuff for sauce, capers, eggs, salt, fish, cress, garlic, juice. And there is um, a meat dish from Athenaeus who quotes a recipe from Epanetus called, uh, the dish is called Mima, and uh, a mima of any sacrificial animal or chicken is to be made by chopping the lean meat finely, mincing liver and offal with blood and flavoring it with vinegar, melted cheese, silphium, cumin, thyme, roman hyssop, coriander leaf, coriander seed, onion, fried onions or poppy seeds, raisins or honey, and the seeds of sour pomegranate. You may also use it as a relish. And now for the extra bit for Patreon backers only on how the pomegranate reached Andalusia. If you remember in our medieval episode, uh, the first um, ruler of um, Al-Andalus, Abd al-Rahman, he barely escaped with his life from uh, Damascus when the Abbasids hunted and killed all his family. And that's it. This is the episode for today. Thank you for listening. You- hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You know what I'm going to say. Please, please, please go and uh, review and rate the podcast wherever you're listening to your podcasts from. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Acasts, and share it with uh, three friends. Uh, if you do me this favor, it means the podcast can grow and more people can listen to it and we can keep this going. Thank you for listening. I've been Thomas Dinas and this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. Have a lovely week. See you soon.